welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski, and thanks so much for joining us on episode number three of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. On today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking with Jamie Kerstetter with close to $700,000 in live poker earnings and almost $800,000 in online poker earnings. She's done quite well for herself at the tables. In recent years, though, Jamie's made even more of a splash with her poker commentary, Twitter presence, and other work in the poker industry. Today, we're all going to get to know her a little bit better. Jamie, welcome to Cards Chat, and thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Robbie, thanks for having me, and thanks for the nice intro. You just left out how much I lost, which is about 2 to $2.5 million. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> it's good to get the complete picture. You know, you can't you can't look that one up on Hand and Mob, so thanks yeah. for filling us in. We're Thank God. It. Yeah, right? Um, so let's start out, uh, well, you know, why don't you go ahead and tell us the first time you ever played poker in a casino or a card room. That's the kind of stuff that uh, the folks at the Cards Chat community are really interested in. Where, when did it happen? And what was that experience like for you? Okay, um, I actually, I did, I went the Phil Ivey, no home Jerome method. Um, and I actually tried to play when I was 20. <laughs> um, I live close to Atlantic City and that's where my dad's side of the family was from. Um, so I went to the Tropicana and I, I probably looked like I was 12 years old, but they didn't care. I bought $200 of chips um, and I just sat at a table and played two for limit um, for about an hour. And I just felt like at any moment I was going to get busted. Wow. <laughs> like cops were going to come running in. So I played a little bit and I left um, and basically once or twice played like that before my 21st birthday. Wow. Um, and for card rooms, um, I had only played with my friends and my family prior to that. So I would just like sit around and play $5 poker. Um, and yeah, and I guess the first legal time I played, uh, I believe I went to Borgata, but at that point it was kind of like when you sneakily drive a car before you get your license, then you get your license and you're like, Oh, I kind of ruined it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's like a little part of you that almost wanted to get card in before you. Were yeah, traveling. exactly. <laughs> the the folks around the table, you know, uh, when you were playing that two four limit, are they all sort of like your grandparents' age, or what was that vibe like? Yeah, I mean, it was a very like chill, quiet game, um, and that like yeah, that was kind of cool actually to just sit and and play a game where you're not really risking all that much, um, and just get a feel for how casino poker works um, and how different it really is from a home game. You know, I like my mom has a little $5 home game and she tells me all the time because I try to coach her to get a little better at poker. And she says, yeah, but when I raise, everyone gets mad. (laughs) That's the way that game works. So it was cool to play with strangers and and realize, okay, it's like a little bit more business here where, you know, everyone there is trying to win a little bit of money. Whereas like home games, it can just be for fun. Right. Oh, really cool. Well, you know, we all know you as a uh, professional poker player, of course, but Originally, you wanted to be a lawyer. You graduated from Michigan Law, right? Yep. Okay. And then you ended up taking a little bit of a different path. Of course, you became the professional poker player. Um, But it seems like you're sort of affiliated in some way a little bit to renowned poker lawyer Mac Verstandig and the Verstandig Law Firm. So Mm -hmm. maybe you could sort of tell us, like, what's that about? Are you still sort of doing legal work on the side with the legal pad? 
Um, it's funny. I actually practiced at two law firms for about a total of three years um, before realizing it was really not for me. It was a little boring. I was doing trust and estates planning, so it's pretty dry. Um, and I just like quit to play poker. I just every day I went to work thinking maybe I'll quit today. And I'm like, this is a really bad way to live your life. <laughs> so finally, I just left. Um, and with Mac Verstandig, he actually uh, hit me up when Scott Blumstein was at the final table of the main. Um, and we started talking about possibly patching up Scott for that. And like, if Scott would need some help with anything and we just became friends discussing this stuff. And I was like, yes, Scott actually needed to talk to a lawyer and get a free consult for a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's how we started our relationship. Um, and then he realized there was an opportunity with me. Um, I talk a lot at the tables, like I end up meeting a lot of people and I play live cash and, and some tournaments and stuff. And uh, he just realized I could be used for marketing basically. Um, and so I don't actually do legal work for him mm -hmm. besides once in a while, he'll randomly send me something and say, does this sound right? Like, what do you think of this in this brief? Like, but basically I don't actually have to practice law, which is a goal. Right. <laughs> um, and I still get to sort of be involved. So like during the apostle stuff, um, it was interesting to be involved with Mac to just hear that side of it and hear, exactly what was going on with like California law being so unfavorable to our case, uh -huh. that kind of thing. So, you know, I enjoy law to some extent. I like it more when I'm not doing it every day where I don't have to actually be bored in a job every day. When, when Mac was talking to me about possible, I'm like, Oh, I want to hear every single detail, which is funny because if I was a lawyer still, I'd be like, Oh my God, not on my free time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that for sure. And you know, you can't sort of, you can't help but mention also Vanessa Selps just for, for the sake of, of comparison, because she is another, of course, successful poker player with a law degree, but she sort of did it up. She decided to step away from the felt and, and focus more using her legal training in a professional capacity. You know, you, do you, you know, I know you said like uh, it's kind of a goal not to have to be a lawyer, but maybe do you mm -hmm. see yourself, you know, dusting off the cobwebs in, you know, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years and, and going back to doing some legal work that you're really passionate about? Um, it would have to be a really special job. I don't care about the money enough to just have it be, oh, I got a great offer from a firm. Um, there have been things that have come up in the last three or four years, just with the world being crazy right now. Mm -hmm. um, I have felt once or twice that, okay, there's some real good I could do. Uh, I wouldn't work at a big firm again, but possibly for the ACLU or some organization that is doing something important right now. The one drawback, a huge drawback uh, of having a law degree, but having let all my... Uh, like there's so many different things you have to keep up with that I let lapse because I knew I was going to play poker for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I would have to go back and take all these like continu continuing legal education classes out of pocket. It's kind of expensive. Um, there's certain states where I wouldn't even be able to practice. I would have to take the bar in those states. Sure. Um, they don't just say, oh, you passed in New Jersey. Sure, you're good here. Uh, it would be such an annoying path to go be a lawyer somewhere. So it would have to be something so important. I've thought about it for the ASPCA as well, for animal rights, just trying to do something good. Um, I think what's more likely than that is that if I left poker, I would have a pit bull rescue and just completely forget I was ever a lawyer or a poker player. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Wow. It's good to have uh, sort of multiple things that you're passionate about. That's always good to yeah. have a degree to, to fall back on, or like you said, uh, if uh, other, other sort of causes that uh, you really just want to, you know, dedicate your time to. Mm -hmm. So 
That's interesting. Well, when you first uh, started out, enough of the legal mumbo jumbo. So when you first started <laughs> out, you played uh, mostly online and now you play mostly live. But of course, you know, during this pandemic, obviously uh, online as well. Um, I've heard you say in other interviews that online poker kind of comes more easily to you than live poker. Why is that? It's just I'm comfortable. Um, I think for some people, like I've, I end up talking about women in poker, whether I want to or not. Um <laughs> It's it's a different game. I, I don't know how, like, I'm not someone who's extroverted 100% of the time. I think I, like, go back and forth. And just like, a couple weeks ago, we talked about doing the pod, and I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm like, I'm, I'm in a downswing. I don't feel like I'll be upbeat. You know, I kind of just want to keep to myself for a little while. Mm -hmm. I get in those moods, um, and it's really hard to be a female poker player, be in one of those moods, and sit at a poker table and concentrate. Hmm. Because I think a lot of the time, like guys are right that women do like to talk more mm -hmm. in general. So they're like, Oh, hi, what are you doing here? Like, how, how's your week going all this? And it's like a very friendly atmosphere, but if you're not feeling social, it's not a great place to be. If you're a female poker player and you don't right. feel like talking, I'm like I sit at a table and then I'm just going to have like, I don't know, short conversations and feel like a jerk. And so I feel like I always feel the same about online poker. Um, I sit down and I'm like, I want to play. Uh, I don't have to worry about any of the other stuff that comes with live poker. And so I just feel like I end up putting in a lot of hours. Even when I was playing, even before the pandemic, um, I would probably play one or two days live per week mm -hmm. um, and the rest of it online. And the only time that that is different is during WSOP where I would just play live every day. Sure. Um, but even during WSOP last year, I was like, yes, an online event today. <laughs> just sit at home. Don't put on makeup. Don't worry about how I look. Don't worry about anything except for playing. Right. Um, and I just, I really enjoy that. I just still really enjoy playing poker. So that's like the purest form where you just don't have any other distractions. Right. That's an interesting answer. Also, it, it shows like tremendous self-awareness. I mean, not, you know, you're obviously self-aware, but it's interesting to sort of hear that, you know, we're myself and I know a lot of folks in the cards chat community, we're not professional players. So it's interesting to sort of hear that self-awareness. And just like, you know, when you're tilting for whatever reason, you're not supposed to sit down and play, you know, exactly sort of what you're feeling like and you can withdraw appropriately play online or, okay, we're feeling better and go back to the tables. That's that's really interesting and uh, something certainly to learn from. Um, yeah, great, great answer. Yeah, uh, it, it came up once I felt so guilty. Um, there was this, there was an app a while ago you could put on Twitter. I can't remember what it was called, but it was like, it was so people could anonymously message you something if they wanted to tell you something. So it was like basically opening myself up to criticism. I think Kate mm. Hall was like the original person who put that up. I was like, yeah, I should probably put this up because there's stuff people probably think like, you know, you you got your head so far up your butt about this issue. Here's how I think about it. And I thought this is interesting. So I put it up and somebody messaged me that they got sat at my table and they were really looking forward to talking to me about all this stuff. They're like, oh, I love your Twitter. And I was going to ask you about all this stuff, but you look so grumpy and you didn't want to talk. And I and he's like, I just want to let you know, like, sometimes you're just on your phone the whole day. And I was like, I feel so bad because wow. <laughs> it's like, that's not, it's not my job to entertain this person, but right. also I, I like people. I didn't mm -hmm. want this person to like have a crappy day because they're like, Oh, I like your Twitter. I want to talk to you. And then you're like, Oh, actually she's this like salty mean <laughs> person, you know, I'm like, Oh, I, like that just made me feel so bad. Um, that's a, that's a shame because sure I don't. 
do that. Right. And it's funny because as a public figure, there's sort of like expectations, but, you know, based on what you had said before as well, it is a little bit unfortunate and it's something to sort of point out. Men are, you know, for better or for worse, they're held to a much lower standard in that regard. You know, some guy wants yeah, to go socially, ahead and, and yeah, be quiet. And, <laughs> right. And, and it's, it's just, it's not fair. You know, that's just, yeah. it's a little bit not fair and uh, it's, it's good for, for pointing that out and it's something we all ought to sort of be aware of. And always, you know, my, my, my always, my attitude is always, let's just go ahead and be understanding someone's having a bad day. That's fine. You know, no, mm-hmm. no need to, to go ahead and, and judge like that. I just assume someone's like down swinging very hard. If I like feel like I have a sense of a person's personality from their online presence and then they don't match up with it at the table, I just think this person might be in a hundred K downswing. I don't know, you know, or maybe there's someone who they're not as self-confident as they seem online online. It's easy to just like portray yourself a certain way. And then maybe at the table, they don't feel comfortable. They're not like this gregarious like I don't know extroverted person and that can happen too but yeah I just felt bad I was like I don't want to be that person who like seems like they're stuck up or like I'm like I'm not I just (laughs) I probably just was losing you know (laughs) right well the interesting thing and of course we can always change our avatars online I guess now that we're all wearing masks (laughs) when we play live poker we can have a little bit of that element too uh wear a mask with a smile on it even though you're (laughs) crying inside um when you are playing live of course you know you live in Las Vegas you have your pick of great rooms to play at. Uh, and you do, you know, travel around to other rooms uh, across uh, the United States of America. What, what are your favorite rooms uh, to play in Las Vegas and then outside of Las Vegas and uh, why? Um, I think Encore, the Wynn property is mm. amazing. Uh, they just do everything right. If you're a tournament player, that's the best place to play. Um, they basically, I, I wrote a tweet a while ago because I, they weren't trying to get praise for this. They're just all caring about their jobs. We're about six or seven away from the money in this tournament. It's a, it was kind of a big one. I think there probably were like maybe 15 tables left Mm -hmm. and they have two floor guys that are running around from table to table counting and collecting cards. And then it's five minutes later and I see them jogging around and making sure their count is right. They're doing it over and over again. And the board was to the person every time it would be like, you know, whatever, 84 left or whatever, 83 left, they would tick down every single time someone busted. So everyone in the room would know exactly where they stood and not make any mistakes by thinking, you know, that there's, they're 50 away from the money when really they're 10 away from the money. Um, And I posted on Twitter, I was like, thank you. I appreciate that, whatever. And the one, one floor comes over, he goes, thank you so much. He's like, my boss pointed out uh, croutons having a dream in the background. (laughs) Um, he put, he's like, yeah, my boss said, you know, thanks for the tweet or whatever. I'm like, thank you guys. They, I don't think they understand, especially me. I'm a knit and I'm always like 10 big blinds. <laughs> so for me, <laughs> like, knowing the exact count is so important. Um, and I just think they have the best dealers. They have the best floor. It's a really friendly room. Um, and it's just, it's nice and quiet and bright and in the corner, not smoky. I love that room. And then Aria would get second place. And then for new players, I would say any of the rooms that pros don't love, like I was coaching one of my friends who's new um, and he plays one too. And Mm -hmm. I said, Planet Hollywood, it is the (laughs) loudest, smokiest, worst, but you're in the middle of the casino floor. It's a complete nightmare, but you would not catch a pro dead in there. So that's a place where, you know, if you're starting out and you're worried mostly about building your bankroll and being plus EV in your seat, that's the spot. 
<laughs> Confirmed. I can't say I started out there. My first one-two game was in Binions, believe it or not, way, way oh, back wow. in the day. <laughs> way back in uh, 2003 or four, I think, is the first time I played there. But uh, for nowadays, I, I would certainly agree there's a, a lot uh, – Certainly a lot of uh, sensory stimulation in uh, on the yeah. planet of Hollywood floor. Uh, how about you know, outside I mean, of Las Vegas? The, oh, I was going to say, how do, you, how do the dealers do it? They sit there the whole day and like, I hope they get tipped better in that room. <laughs> oh, I, I, I try to tip better, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly uh, an experience to say that you've dealt at planet Hollywood. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, outside of Vegas, uh, let me think about this. I recently went to Hamul, the one in San Diego, um, because Run Goodyear put on an event there and it was beautiful. Um, the room isn't very big, uh, but the games were pretty juicy and they're kind of built into this mountainside in San Diego. So there's this like amazing, uh, bar and grill with this huge deck overlooking some outs. It's really nice. Um, other than that, Florida, I love the hard rock in Florida. It just feels like vacation. Like the pool is so nice. And I feel like people kind of let loose there too and end up having drinks and stuff after they're done playing. Um, in, because it in, just has uh, that resort. Hollywood feel. or in Tampa? Which, which hard rock? Um, Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. Nice. That's where uh, yeah. Tony and Burns then, is based, right? Yep. I love that guy. He's yep. a nice dude. And uh, Borgata is my home base. That's another just... Um, just really nice casino and they run really big, very good tournaments. So, so, so important spot. to shout out the good rooms and I'm sure uh, folks in the community be interested to hear, you know, what, what, you know, those reasons, why is it that you like those yeah. rooms and, and why to try it uh, out? And Peppermill. Oh, and Reno. <laughs> can you tell that yeah. I miss, can you tell that I miss live poker when you're like, where do you like to play? I'm like everywhere. <laughs> 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 it's, it's good to have a room anywhere you're traveling. It's good to have that room that you like going to. I've heard a lot yeah. of good stuff about Peppermill. It's where the uh, it's, Run It oh, Up Reno was held. Yeah. You have to go to Run It Up Reno, Robbie. Any, this is the best. Like, I, I hope they have them still because they've had to cancel two in a row. And I know mm. they need the money. Like, it's that those are their big events. Um, I hope they have them again because that event is basically centered completely around fun. Um, it Love is the it. nicest environment for new players to play because no one will be mean to you. No one's going to be like, oh my God, you played this hand, you suck. It's never like that. And they've been, <laughs> some of them are $100 and the trophy is like bigger than you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. And of course, Jason Somerville, who runs it, is such a great He's guy. Awesome. Yeah. And you know, it, it actually runs uh, quite well into my next question here is, uh, this is something we always ask uh, all of our guests uh, on the uh, Cards Chat podcast here. Who is the friendliest competitor that you've had at a table with you? Wow. I, I mean, it's funny that we just said Somerville. It's Somerville. We, oh, really? I was in, uh, I played poker after dark. Um, it was I think 25, 50 no limit. Uh, something to make me uncomfortable. You know, I'm buying it for 5K. My normal buy-in is 500 to $1,000. I'll go play two five or whatever. Um, so for me, an uncomfortable amount of money and Within 10 minutes of sitting with Somerville, we are just laughing and needling each other. And it was, you know, we're friends and that's cool. Um, but I feel like it's more than that. He's like that with everyone. You know, he's going to have a good time. He yep. doesn't need the, the money. You know, I think that factors in that like he's were on a successful company and he was this like Twitch powerhouse. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a casual little game for him. And he made it fun for the whole table. And I just think that that is how he is, whether you're uh, a known pro or you're an anonymous person who just is at his table. He's, he's a lot of fun. Nice. Well, I, I can't say that I've played with him, but I've interviewed him before and I will certainly confirm his energy is contagious. I mean, I'm, I'm 
a pretty positive, lighthearted, happy kind of guy pretty much all the time. And this guy was just like taking me like five levels up. He was really, <laughs> really. And like this was nine o'clock in the morning too. <laughs> yeah. It's just like it's really. frustrating that he's not the face of poker. Hmm. He was the face of Twitch. Like he built a huge following in a space that is ultra competitive, mm-hmm. way more competitive than anything else in the poker community is like the people trying to grab an audience on Twitch. Those people watching on Twitch can watch anything they want. There's thousands of channels at any time. And there's probably dozens of poker channels at any time. And he harnessed this massive audience there, but somehow in poker, he's, he's not this like massive sponsored pro. I feel like we dropped the ball with him. I think he's the kind of person that the poker community should be highlighting and sponsoring and putting him on, you know, whenever there's news shows that want to talk to a poker player, why don't we talk to him? Yep. He'll put a good face on poker. And I'm not sure, maybe it's his own choice. I don't know that he's hmm. not super famous right now in poker, that he's kind of just chilling. But I don't know how you feel about that. But I think we sometimes highlight some of the blowhards and the the guys who, you know, they were famous a long time ago, so they're famous now. And sometimes they don't put a good face on poker I'm like, why can't we just kind of shimmy Jason Somerville in those spots instead and have to and like ask him how he feels about stuff? I am a huge Jason Somerville fan booster. And, and I think it's possible, you know, to do what he did. It doesn't happen overnight. This guy worked night and day, you know, seven days a week, month mm-hmm. after month for years. 70 days straight. He right. right. And he what? knows all of his numbers also. He can go ahead yep. and say, we streamed 2.25 billion minutes last week. <laughs> you know, he, like really, and he knows it cold, like bam, like yeah. he'll give you the whole thing, right? He gives with with his, with the parrot, with Mirko. And I, I don't know uh, guys over here at, uh, you know, in, in the community, if you've never heard of Jason Somerville, you know, I, I envy you in that you have so much to learn and <laughs> so much more joy to add to your lives still, because he really is uh, exactly as Jamie has described him as well. Like really a, a wonderful person who could be the face of poker. My guess is, you know, why not take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit? You know, he's what, mid thirties, early thirties, plenty of time ahead of him to, if he wants to go ahead and, you know, get himself out of the dirty basement. And, you know, those who don't know Jason, <laughs> that that's where he resides. It's an inside joke for him, but Uh, I'm sure he has uh, many, many, many more great days uh, to come in the poker world. Um, Well, I will uh, ask you, Jamie, I've checked out your Hendon Mob profile. Don't worry, we're not going to look for the uh, $100 result here. But but, uh, I will say something that stood out to me is that every single one of your caches, dating all the way back to the first one in 2009, is No Limit Hold'em. So my question mm. is, do you play any other variants besides No Limit Hold'em? Um, not a lot. I just, uh, I actually, you missed one. This is the great, my favorite oh. day of my life. I won an 08 tournament at Venetian that had a lot of players in it. And I didn't know how to play in the beginning of the tournament. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I guess I must have missed it. There was like it's just right. one that, in a sea I mean, of caches, so you, I guess. It was completely undeserved and amazing and fun. Um, I recommend it. You feel like you got away with murder when they give you a trophy for a game that you're like, counterfeit, what does that mean? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that was great. I just cashed the PLO bracelet of it. I like won a seat into it or I wouldn't even have played it. Um, And I'm like learning how to do that. But honestly, I think I'm like trying to get good at No Limit Hold'em and that's sort of a lifelong process. I think Mm. there's just so much to the game. I'm starting to work with solvers and, and figure this game out more. And just, it is, you know, it's so complex that 
I don't know how people have time to master 10 different games. Hmm. Like they get, they get so much credit from me because I think it's, it's so hard to just like train your brain. People who play uh, eight game, how do you switch back and forth? And like, this is insane to me. Um, and I think that those games are fun. I'll play the drinking version of it when we play like two, four limit of that when I'll go to some run good stops and stuff. But that's about it. I just, you know, I think for the time that I want to spend on poker, I want to spend it on mastering one game instead. Oh, that, that's interesting because I'm, I'm more of a mixed game player. Obviously, I can't speak for everybody just from my own experience. And obviously, I'm a I'm a rec player and I don't have any any catches at all in the Hendon mob. So there's my little mm-hmm. Achilles. But um <laughs> I do find it a little bit unusual, especially in this era that Hold'em is increasingly being mastered. The, the learning, it's so difficult to get an edge. Not yeah. everyone necessarily plays the game in order to you know, win every single tournament or become a crusher at Badoogie or, or do seven triple draw. <laughs> I, I am wondering though, because as a mixed game player, I mean, I, you know, like you, and you said you've played 2-4, the drinking version of it. Those variants are fun. And they mm-hmm. certainly, you know, they do test your metal as well. Even if you, you can't master them, they're, they're enjoyable games. So why do you think, you know, having played some of them, why do you think they, they haven't become more popular than they are? And, and do you think that perhaps like the age of Stud Hilo or the age of Double Port Omaha it, it, you know, will yet come? I don't know. It's like part of it is that there's a high barrier to entry. You can't play for five bucks. All the other mm. stuff you can, you can play free rolls. You can learn how to play No Limit Hold'em online without ever putting money on. Um, you can play one cent, two cent. And with online poker leaving the U.S. at least, you really can't do that with the mixed games. Mm-hmm. The, you know, you have to go to a casino, put down a couple hundred bucks um, and kind of play one hand at a time. It's hard to get a bank of hands and hard to get a lot of experience. Um, so maybe that's one reason I think that it's kind of hard to dive in. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to Melissa Burr about this too, because there's kind of a problem with people. Um, it's hard to go from the very beginner stages of these games, uh, and then make the leap to like the elite players who are for thousands and thousands of dollars. Right. There isn't like a middle stepping stone for a lot of it. So to me, that's kind of, that kind of dissuades me from trying because I don't really want to play, uh, where I sit down with 5k in front of me when I'm learning. You know, that's a pretty high cost of tuition. I also don't want to be in the like chase every hand kind of game where you're sitting down with $100. I want to sit down with 500 bucks and play and then know that if I get good at whatever, I had this problem when I was starting to play 204008 a little bit. Um, I was like, oh, what's the next step? And in my casino at the time, the next step was 75150. I'm like, what? I was like, this kind of, it's a little bit of a steep climb there. And I would look at that table. I'm like, oh, those people have been playing this their whole lives. So. I don't know. I think that could be part of it where it's just a, it's a little bit intimidating to have your first hands of this game be at a live casino for a decent amount of money. Um, Whereas like a lot of people can sit, like I taught my mom how to play poker where she was playing $1 tournaments online. Yeah, I'll certainly confirm that one. As someone who enjoys those mixed games, every time I go, you know, whether even at the commerce where they've got tons and tons of tables, you know, I'll be like, where are the low limits? I agree with you. There's definitely a high barrier to entry. And I guess this is where I put my little disclaimer. Sure, I've been playing mixed games for 15 years, but in my 25 cent, 50 cent home game. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've had that 
you know, the, that uh, the reps, I've been able to put them in at that low barrier to entry, but uh, you make a, a very valid and important point. I guess, uh, you know, anyone listening out there, if you're running the poker rooms, hey, maybe it's time to start spreading some 10, 20 horse or something like that. So I think for sure. I think that they, uh, there should be a little bit more outreach uh, to very new players. I thought about this a lot because I even feel intimidated when I go to a new room I've never been to. And I'm like, how does the process work here? I feel like a fish where I'm, I'm like, do I talk to the floor person? Do I go get my chips? Do I put myself on a list? Do I have to do it di- like digitally on Bravo? Like what's going on? Um, and I'm someone who's played poker for 15 years and wow. I get that pang of like, Oh no, like everyone knows I'm new. Um, I feel like some rooms should, should really do. This is a new, this is a beginner's game. Um, here's how you buy your chips. Here's whatever. Like there could be a sign where if you're new here, here are the steps for joining this game. Um, and even make like the lowest limit, have it be one, one, uh, no limit or have a, a tiny, uh, mixed games that people can learn mixed games without having to lose a thousand dollars the first time. Yeah. I think that'd be really good for people and, and make it a more welcoming environment where it's right. not so scary to walk into a new room. And it's important. Cause like, you know, as much as the poker, industry, the poker ecosystem has uh, advanced in these last 15 years. You know, the World Series broadcasts are no longer explaining that the flush beats the straight. There's still a whole crop of beginners out there who there's that whole barrier to entry, which isn't necessarily monetary. It's knowledge Mm -hmm. and it's important to train folks. I I have to share a tiny little story. Uh, I have to because you just brought it up about the one one. Um, Mm -hmm. When I was playing at Binion's that I mentioned the first time I played, uh, I still I had played in home games before. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to play. I'm going to take a poker lesson that they were offering. And I know that as soon as the lesson ends, those people who were sitting and playing in the lesson, they start playing for real money, one, one. Uh-huh. So I said, oh, well, I've played a ton before. I'm going to get these guys, right? And I sat through this <laughs> lesson. Awesome. So just I had to share that story. I, never, I don't think I've ever that's, told that story. But <laughs> that's like the cutest form of bum hunting I've ever heard. <laughs> You got me. You got me. Um, You're like, I'm going to take these guys for tens of dollars. That's it. (laughs) Tens of dollars was a lot to 21 year old Robbie. I'll tell you that. Um, Well, you mentioned, Jamie, that uh, you do obviously beyond tons of playing, tons of study. And obviously that's uh, the hallmark of the true professional uh, doing a lot of study. Can you describe uh, a little bit for our listeners the extent and type of time and effort that you put into working on your game away from the felt? Sure. Um, so there was a time I was stagnant, probably a couple of years where I was thinking, oh, I kind of want to do more commentary and podcasting and have poker playing be only half of it. And and I kind of let that be an excuse to just chill out. And and most of the time I spent on poker was actually just playing and not mm-hmm. really improving. Um, and turns out that's a really terrible policy right now because people <laughs> are all getting a lot better. Um, and also for the things that I like to do, I'm like, if I'm commentating I wanted to have a clue I don't want to be you know talking way over my head and all this stuff so um the last maybe six months I've gotten really serious about studying uh being trapped in my house without being able to really leave has helped a lot right um I I joined the study group and I'm with uh like Jesse Sylvia and some really good players um getting some coaching and basically what what I do is I'm playing a session every day, especially uh, with these bracelet events. So they can be about, you know, eight to 10 hours. Um, We'll take the deepest run from that day, uh, go through it hand by hand, get, you know, uh, the most interesting spots pulled out from there. 
if I made a final table, I'll go through um, the toughest ICM spots, put it through ICMizer, um, go through it. Like there's some eye-opening things lately too, where I'm like, man, I've been making the same mistake for five years. Mm. Holy crap. And it, it should feel embarrassing, but it actually feels like an amazing opportunity when you realize you've just been pressing the wrong button for five years. I'm like, <laughs> next time I'll press the right button. Maybe that's never fold too points. much. That's my policy, right? <laughs> me too. <laughs> me and you probably sit at a table and just like drink coffee and that's yeah, it. or we get our, our plain green tea and make $8 an hour. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's it. And like a lot of it lately, which has been fun. Um, one of the guys in our group, his name's Scott Hempel. He just won a bracelet. So yep. at some point we're going to go over that hand history. And I am so excited because he's really good um, to just hear his thoughts and everything and go through some hands. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, doing light solver work. I hate solvers. I wish poker was just more fun and casual. Um, but I think at some point, if I want to move up, if I want to be playing uh, bigger than 510, if I want to be playing tournaments that are, you know, these massive price tags, um, I just have to stop being afraid of it. Uh, right now, though, like Jesse's helping me go through stuff because I... I am like a technophobe. I will look at this stuff and I'm like, ah, I'm going to find some way to make myself worse at poker if I use this program. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of ha being like handheld through it, but, but really um, a little advice I would give to people who are kind of new and wanting to get better is just be brutally honest with yourself. Like I can get really emotional in the moment after making a mistake and just be like, Oh, I'm so unlucky and whatever. And the next day I look at the hand, I'm like, well, if I had bet the flop, I never, I'm in the spot. Like I should bet this flop. And, and the next day I can go and look and realize that like I brought that on myself or I could do it better. Um, so just like be, if you don't have that network of people to help you go through your hands, sometimes just having a fresh look at it later is, is a good tool, you know, That's to just be honest with yourself. That's a great tip. And I always find it interesting, me personally, again, I take the game seriously, but I don't truthfully study. Again, that, that's probably, again, why I don't have mm -hmm. any caches on hand and mop. But what I find so fascinating is, you know, for such a long time, and perhaps even today, there's this perception that, oh, okay, you don't have to go into the real world. You're not stuck at one of those jobs where you have to work hard or anything like that, or, oh, I didn't like math or anything like, oh, I'm going to go be a professional poker player. But every single time I hear from professionals such as yourself, the dedication, the amount of effort that it takes to really sit and, and improve and become that professional that's well known for the success at the tables, it is astounding, very eye-opening and, and quite admirable, I have to say. It's really not just about what you're doing at the tables. It's really you're so focused and there really is that professional element to it. And uh, thank you for sharing uh, your study habits. Oh, um, Robbie, you have to see some of the, like, the people who buy into the 100Ks and the $1 million tournaments. They are absurd. Like I, I had one session with Elliot Rowe uh, a few years ago and we just got to discussing it and I was like, yeah, I feel like I'm working pretty hard. And he kind of was like, do you want to know what some of these other guys are doing? <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm doing no work, but right. that's, that's the kind of thing you can be a winning player at lower stakes without being crazy and, and, and studying 40 hours a week. You probably could study a couple hours a week and win at, at most yep. like lower stakes. But for those guys, you know, they're, they're chasing the tiniest edges ever, but they're buying to $1 million tournaments. And like, if you chase a 1% edge in there, you're going to make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was eye opening to me that I'm like, wow, I'm like, I felt like I worked hard. And then you just find someone like Jason Kuhn and you're like, this dude just, <laughs> he 
Eats yeah. Sleeps and <laughs> well, you did, you did uh, name drop Elliot Rowe there, and you're actually the second person, our first guest on the podcast, Jeff Gross, uh, Cards Chat Ambassador. He also mentioned Elliot Rowe, and for those who don't know who he is, he's uh, one of the top mental game coaches in the game, and perhaps will be a future guest here on the, the Cards Chat podcast. Um, Jamie, how about downtime with all of the play, with all of the study, uh, you know, besides spending time with Crouton, you've got to have perhaps other hobbies or other things that you engage in away from the tables. Yeah. Um, I am pretty into hiking stuff. Like I, right now is a tough time because it's 110 every day in Vegas, but I went on a night hike. I've gone to Mount Charleston for their like nice 80 degree weather to escape it. Um, I like running, but I haven't been doing enough of it lately. Um, I went ice skating yesterday for the first time in five years. And I'm going to, now I have a standing date with one of my friends every week. I was like, this is the best exercise and so fun. And it made me feel like a kid because you know, like who grownups don't ice skate, (laughs) 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 but it was cool. And it's a thing you can do socially distance. Like I wore a mask on the ice. There were only 15 people on there. They limited it. Like you have to pay a little more money, but they limit the amount of people. So that was awesome so i'll be doing that <laughs> i'll probably break my leg but um and then my hobbies though i i just got a puppy um to keep crouton company and 90 percent of my day i just watch her and go to my boyfriend i'm like chris look how cute that's what i do <laughs> that's great and that's that's important whatever gives you pleasure and and can uh relax you and, and take your mind off of the uh, intensity that is poker <laughs> Uh, yeah. It's very important to have that. Well, you're, of course, uh, an accomplished professional poker player. We've we've gone through that aspect. But uh, as mentioned in the intro, you've become perhaps even better known for your social media presence. You've mentioned Twitter a few times. Uh, and, of course, your work in poker media as a podcaster, as a commentator. What made you sort of decide to start branching off into the media side of the poker industry? Um, I don't feel like I made a decision at any point. I just kind of say yes to everything. So like anytime I had an opportunity to, um, hop in the booth and say, Hey, do you want to commentate this event? And I said, sure. Um, party poker kind of made me do it when I was at, I was at a WPT Venice and I was a party New Jersey pro. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have a choice. Cause I'm like, well, you guys are paying me just to rep you and that's an awesome job. And I want to keep this job. So, okay, I'll do this really scary thing. Um, and that was the first time I ever commentated and, after that, I just started saying yes to it because it made me feel really good to do something that I was afraid to do and get through it. Um, and I felt like I was just improving each time I got to do it. Um, so I like that. The podcasting, I guess, was a little more intentional. Um, with Chad Holloway, we had our uh, LFG podcast for yep. about two years. Um, that was meant to highlight people that I feel like don't get enough credit. Um, and I feel like it really did that. And I kind of miss it. Um where it would be someone who won maybe a $300 circuit event and it was their first hen and mob cash or it was their Mm -hmm. first big win. And I got to talk to these people and get the best answers because none of them had canned answers. They were like, sometimes it was the first poker interview. Um, So you got to hear like raw emotion and and got to meet a lot of different people that aren't represented represented very much um, by these like bigger pods. So that was great. Um, Mm -hmm. And just... I feel like the Twitter thing is just, I am a goofball. I've always been very sarcastic and got my dad's sense of humor for better or worse. Um, And so that was a thing where I just started tweeting random things and I just really enjoy it. So that, I don't know. I don't really have like, I didn't sit and meditate and go, I'm going to branch out from playing (laughs) into all these other things. I just kind of say yes to a lot of stuff and just see what I enjoy doing. 
That's really cool. What, what do you think? Uh, I didn't have this question planned, but I'm interested based on your answer. What do you feel that you've gained from having done these things and, and going outside your comfort zone? I am I am so much more confident in uh, in social situations. Like it's really interesting. I was someone who uh, I was class president my senior year. I've always been like kind of like an outgoing person friend wise. But when it came to being a person in front of a group, it was my nightmare. I'm like, I don't want to talk to a bunch of people. I don't want to present a thing. I don't want to public speak. There was like, it was definitely a, a fear. Um, and then I, I feel like I've gained just that confidence that like, it'll be okay. Just like be yourself, give, give your comments. Like not everyone's going to like it. I'm not gonna be everyone's cup of tea. That's fine. That kind of thing. I just feel a lot better about stuff like that. And I didn't realize it until I, I was a, I was a plus one to a wedding um, where I would know zero people. And my date was in the wedding party. So he was completely separate. And I sat at the table and I felt no fear of like meeting all these people. I just was like, okay, let's find what we have in common. And I like talked to everyone and had a really good time. And I'm like, <laughs> if I was 20, that would be like, I would probably have to take Xanax to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, like there's definitely ways where like, it wasn't intentional to try to grow and branch out in that way, but I feel like it has changed my personality for the better, or at least made me feel more comfortable. And I don't know, there's, uh, think about like interviews too. I kind of feel like I could sit in an interview and be like, screw it. There's variance to this. Hopefully this dude likes me and I get this job. And I feel like I could just be myself. Whereas when I was interviewing for law jobs, I was like the stiffest, most scared person. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. It's always good uh, at least to try to get outside one's comfort zone because mm-hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. But that that feeling of what could be if you never try it, that could always be sort of something sort of nagging uh, at you. So mm-hmm. that's, that's interesting. Well, you mentioned uh, Chad Holloway, my good friend as well uh, from the LFG podcast. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention The Rake, which uh, you another podcast mm-hmm. you host currently with Marley Cordero. Um, what do you enjoy most about co-hosting a podcast? Um, I think that one, what I enjoy most about that one compared to LFG is mm-hmm. that there's no limit to the type of person we can talk to with, with the rake. Um, LFG was great because we were intentionally highlighting the often overlooked mid stakes players mm-hmm. um, with the rake though, anything, if we have a huge controversy, I can get that person. We can fit it into the pod. Um, so Marley and I've got to talk to a lot of very interesting people um, and there's no real direction. We're not trying to push any kind of agenda um, or prove anything. So if we just have someone who, who loves poker, um, and is a celebrity or something, and they just want to talk about their love for poker, we could have them on. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing for that, that every pod is very different that we don't have segments and we don't have specific types of guests. Right. So I kind of think like I've gotten, I don't know, I think, I don't know how you feel, but for podcasting, after leaving the pod, I always feel like I like made a friend. I'm like, oh, I got to know a lot about this person in the hour. I think um, you sort of took the words out of my mouth because I, I wasn't, that's not scripted, but I certainly feel that way already. And we've still got a little while to go. But uh, <laughs> and as much as I've, I've met you before, we've spoken before, everything, I certainly feel that much more that I'm getting to know you now. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I certainly agree. Um, I'm wondering uh, how much prep work you, uh, you typically do before a podcast episode. It really depends on the guest because there have been a few people where I'm I'm like, oh, I know this person. Let's just see where the conversation goes. Um, I tend to like the more guided. I know Marley likes the just free flowing. Let's see what they want to talk about. Um, 
I kind of like having uh, an outline or like a few tweets that they wanted, you know, that they said, talked about, and I want to figure out where this came from or whatever the controversy is. Like, especially we did one um, with Veronica Brill Mm -hmm. about Apostle, and I just had like 20 different questions I wanted to ask her that I didn't want to forget. And she talks a lot. Like, she's so, she's so interesting. She went on for minutes for certain things. And I'm like, wait, I need to bring you back because I need this answer. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of interesting. So I guess it depends on the guest. There are certain people who are like a couple hours. I just like am peeling through all their socials and trying to figure out stuff about them because maybe I don't know them very well. Mm -hmm. And then when it's someone who's a friend, I'm like, like Jesse Silvio was on. I'm like, oh, we could just shoot the shit for hours. Um, (laughs) And like he could just tell stories. And I like didn't prepare for that one. So I'm like, this is just going to be like friends having a conversation. That's interesting. So I'm okay. So that's podcasting. And of course, You've you've uh, done some wonderful commentary on uh, WSOP. We sort of uh, worked uh, worked together a little bit, kind of, sort of, for that as well. Um, I'm curious. Well, you've obviously worked with Norman Chad with Lon McCarran. What or how is your preparation different for that versus, let's say, uh, a podcast? Other than, of course, preparing to laugh at uh, Norm's jokes. <laughs> well. The WSOP main, that was like my whole preparation was just cold sweats. I'm like, oh God, <laughs> go talk to half a million people. Wow. Um, that was more of the mental thing of just like calming down because I was scared of it. Um, mm-hmm. And with that, uh, it was cool with the last few tables because then I could actually go home and read up on players and, and mm-hmm. see where they're coming from and have a little more to offer um, besides analysis because I don't think I'm the best analyst or anywhere near it. So like being able to supplement that with like doing a little background work and having some other stuff to offer. Um, yeah, it's hard to prepare for stuff like that though, right? Like I don't, I don't even know how I landed in some of those jobs. Like I don't have a broadcasting background. I'm not even sure I would know how to prepare, but, um, what I would do is just show up early. If my call time is one, I'd show up at noon and just like get the tables, um, mapped out who the players are and just try to find some interesting backstories to them and like look up their hand and mobs and you know just have something to offer um when there's dead air sure well I, as someone who's listened to your podcast a few times both lfg and the rake uh and uh i've also of course watched you on uh, the main event uh you're pretty good at it so my guess is my guess is that's how you got it because so, you're good and you try hard and you care so that's just my personal opinion and i'm sure that there's at least half a million people who agree with me um Aww. so that's the truth <laughs> Um, so I'm wondering then, okay, we talked a lot about your poker career at the felt. We've talked some about what you've done on the industry level in what do you find more personal fulfillment? That's a really good question because I, I think, you know, I'll give you the cop out answer in that it changes. I, it's why I'm still in poker because my focus has shifted a lot, um, from, you know, the, the actual just playing, like I moved to Rosarito, Mexico for a year and a half and I just played poker. I was barely on Twitter. I didn't have a podcast. I wasn't commentating. Um, I just played every day. I talked to friends I thought were good at poker about hands and just tried to get better every day. Um, so I lived that part. And I think that's when I was the happiest, uh, because I was just so focused and so into it. Um, but then, I think that would have gotten old. Like if I still lived in Rosarito and was playing on stars and all this stuff and it's my 10th year doing it, I I'm not somebody that is going to have one job her whole life. I know that like, even as a kid, like, what do you want to be? It changed week. Um, 
So I think the fact that other opportunities have come up in poker for me to step away from the tables once in a while and kind of try to, you know, try my hand at something else and see if it sticks, um, that has kept me in poker. It's kept me interested in it and enjoying it. Um, but honestly, uh, the most fulfillment I get is in writing. So there's there have been opportunities that have come up and I'm like, you know, if the be- if the right one came up, um, poker would take a a spot on the back burner and I would do that for a little while. So I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it, but I've talked to some players who are very focused on poker, but they all have some kind of creative outlet to like stoke that right brain energy a little bit too. Um, Or I think you get to be kind of an unhappy person if you don't have any other thing to focus on, because then you are just like a slave to your results Mm -hmm. and you, you know, your month is either good or bad by how plus or minus you are. And I, I just don't want that kind of life. Well, that, that's no, not a cop-out answer whatsoever. That's uh, certainly enlightening, and, and I agree. It's important to have balance. Even if stuff that you're passionate about, like playing, it's, uh, it is important to have other stuff that you do. And uh, you told us here on the Cards Chat podcast uh, what that stuff is. Um, mm-hmm. And a shout-out to, uh, what's her name? Buttercup, you said, I believe? Oh, yeah. So, actually, you mentioned Norman. I wanted to shout-out to Blue as well. So, when uh, <laughs> I, I put on Twitter about... 10 days. I can't believe it. I feel like I've had this puppy for three months. Um, 10 days ago that I've been looking for a pit bull puppy, uh, a female, because my dog just crouton loves girl dogs. He always gets along with them. Great. And he's just like a really, really nice, like calm dog. Um, I was like, I really want to get him a puppy because he has been very <laughs> bored. No one's visiting our house. Everyone's social distancing and every day for him is the same and it makes me feel bad. So, um, I put that on Twitter and a girl named Haley uh, hit me back and said, yeah, actually Animal Foundation in Nevada had these pit bull pup- puppies listed. It looks like there are a couple left. I'm like, terrific. So I call the foster that's holding them until they're eight weeks old. And I said, instead of dropping them at the shelter, how about I take one of those? Um, and she's like, sure, I'm going to keep the sister. And I said, okay, cool. So we had a little play date, got along great. I was like, all right, I'm going to set this up. Uh three days before they're supposed to get dropped at the shelter for their adoption for the foster and I to take them. She says, it turns out we really aren't going to have the time to keep that other puppy. And I'm like, Oh no, I don't want this little girl to be sitting at a shelter by herself after I take her sister. So I start calling everyone and texting everyone. I was like, I know someone wants this adorable dog. Um, and I hit up Norm because he tragically lost his dog. Daisy, Daisy right. who he loved um, from a complication from surgery. And I was like, I had said to him a million times, please get another dog. Like you won't feel good until you do. Um, and I hit him up and I showed him all the pictures and uh, suckered him in. And he said, okay. So I had, had a call to shelter and they're like, oh, we don't do out of state adoptions. So I said, but this is Norman Chad and he's very famous <laughs> and he does these broadcasts and he'll be able to promote your foundation and all this. And the lady's like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. And the foster ends up doing the same thing. She ends up emailing them and says, yeah, I think he'd be really great. Um, and yeah, he actually has the sister now. So Norman and I are, uh, are related for the next 15 years or so. <laughs> I always say, yeah, you're not godparents, but you're dog parents. That's for sure. Yep. So. <laughs> Love it. Well, the last question I've got for you, Jamie, uh, what items do you have on your to-do list poker-wise and industry-wise? Maybe there are some sort of milestones or achievements that that you aspire to? Yeah, I, well, now that I'm studying, I, you know, it's tough to make a results-oriented one, but I don't have a six-figure score. Um, I commentate on all these elite players and I just, I want to experience that once, you know, just 
like having that moment where you're like, oh, everything went amazing. I won this big tournament and it's enough money where I can chill out. I don't feel like I need to grind the next week. Um, that kind of thing. I really feel like I will feel sad leaving poker if I don't have that one like moment of glory. Um, and other than that, I, I don't, I've got to do a lot of cool stuff. You know, it would have been poker after dark or something like that, but I've gotten to do that. Um, so I guess just that one big tournament win and everything else, I feel like I've checked off the boxes that I really wanted to do. That That's awesome to be so satisfied like that. And I guess it's just a matter of when you're ready to use that one time and hopefully it'll, <laughs> yep. come, hopefully it'll come through. Uh, well, before we sign off, Jamie, is there anything else you'd like to share with uh, the Cards Jack community? Um, I just wanted to say I really appreciate that the community exists because there's a lot of negativity. Um, anything that we do in poker, sometimes I'll put something out and I just brace myself for the comments. You know, there's just, there, you can't make everyone happy. Um, so it's really important to highlight people in poker that are trying to do good and communities that are trying to be supportive and get more players in the game, make sure everyone's experiences are happy. And I think that you guys are doing a really good job and it's nice that you started a podcast as well. Well, that's cool. Awesome. That's a, that's a great answer. And of course, uh, we mentioned Jamie's Twitter a number of times. You can follow her at Jamie Kerstetter. Thank you very much, Jamie, for joining us. And thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in once again to another episode of Cards Chat. I'm Robbie Straczynski, and you can follow me at Twitter at Card Player Life. Have a wonderful day. So everybody, one of the things that uh, we're going to be doing on each one of our podcast episodes here for Cards Chat, we're going to turn to you, the community, and we want to hear from you. What sort of questions do you have for our guests? There are dedicated threads for this in the forum. Shout out to Debbie. Thank you so much for administering that. Um, Today, we've got one question from Phoenix Wright uh, on the the forums. And uh, Jamie, are you ready for the question? Sure. Okay. Uh, I am fairly new to poker, writes Phoenix Wright, but notice that we share a lot in common. For instance, you graduated from Rutgers University and you got your JD from University of Michigan before changing career paths for poker. I am a college student transferring into University of Michigan as we speak. Becoming a lawyer was one of the career options I almost pursued as well. Several, Several of my friends are lawyers, but I too changed paths. Except instead of poker, I decided to pursue psychology, which I've always loved and naturally had a knack for. As someone greatly interested in the psychology behind the game of poker, how much of a role does poker psychology play into your personal poker game? And furthermore, what form of psychology, sorry, what form does psychology take when you play at various stakes? Yeah, that's a good question. It's funny. I ended up tacking on psychology as a double major at Rutgers, like after I was done with English, because it was so fun to me to like, it was really interesting to learn, especially social psychology, um, learning some tips and tricks to dealing with people. And I think that a lot of it does actually apply to poker. Um, I think live it, it matters a whole lot more because um, you're actually in person looking at someone and observing their physical tells and also having conversations about a wide variety of things with them. Um, there have been specific moments where a person, I'll be getting along with someone so well that they just say, I've never cashed a WSOP event. I would fold aces on the bubble here. And I'm like, why would you tell me that? You know, but you kind of, you just pick up a lot from people. So I think in live poker, you can use psychology a lot more. You just get to know someone. You kind of player type them based on personality. Like I can see someone playing a bunch of hands and you glean a lot of information from that. 
But then you're also, you have someone just telling you information about themselves and you can kind of put players in different boxes based on that. So I think it still is a very important part of the game. Um, not so much online, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but honestly, pay attention to your social psych classes. And uh, there's just things like people, you know, while they're poker players, they're still people. They still have all their like random motivations and stuff that you can learn about. And it is going to guide how they play their cards. So, yeah, I think it still is a pretty important part of the game. Great answer. And not just from the poker playing perspective, but also I didn't know that you had a, a minor in psychology. So that's certainly a, a well-educated response. So um, <laughs> so thank you very much to Phoenix Wright for sending in that question. And again, of course, just a reminder to everyone out there in the community, that's what the community forum threads are there for, by all means. Once you hear that we've got a new guest coming up for an interview, please go ahead and let us know what questions you have to ask. And maybe your question will be the one that we ask our guests. So thanks very oh, much. I, sorry to interrupt oh, you, but I wanted to also let him know, University of Michigan had just a thriving poker scene while I was there. Because um, you're 40 minutes from Greektown Casino. Um, so a lot of the poker clubs uh, in Michigan, they'd meet at the student, uh, I think it was called the Student Union there. We also had it at the quad. There was a law school game in the quad basement. Um, <laughs> and a lot of these guys, we'd play once a week in clubs and then take a little field trip over to Greektown Casino and play against the real poker players there. Awesome. So hopefully he finds a good game because I think I, I kind of miss that social aspect of it where you just get together, get Wendy's at the Student Union and then play a bunch of cards. Well, you certainly made me want to go ahead and start playing poker right now, especially after all of that. So thanks again, Jamie. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. No problem. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.